watch and thought, I'm supposed to go to work right now. So, hope you've been well. What is it warm outside? I haven't been outside all, all day. Kind of, it's chilly now? Good, because I'd, I'd rather it be chilly. I'm a northern boy. I like the cold better than I like the heat. And uh, I love everything about, and I've lived in Augusta for almost 28 years now, but I love everything about Augusta except the summers. Because they're ch- 65 with drizzle. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Weatherman. So, yeah, I, I just, the, the, the hot humidity in the summer is really hard for me because I'm a northern boy. And, and I have this rule of thumb. When it's cold, you can always put on more clothes. But in the summertime, there's only so many you can take off before they arrest you. Right? So, I can deal with summer a whole lot easier. All right, let's get started. We've got a lot of things to cover this evening. Uh, We're in week four of a five-week series. So, we'll finish this series next week. And, uh, what? Was somebody cheering? I thought somebody was cheering. We'll finish this series next week. And, uh, but this has been, this has been a good series for me. This has really tromped all over my toes. We're in this series called When God Says Yes and You Say No, Lessons from Jonah's Journal. And, and as a means of starting each session, we've gone through journals, journals of famous people, Marilyn Monroe and Thomas Edison and Albert Einstein and Nathaniel Hawthorne, I think was last week. So I'm going to share another one with you tonight. Uh, this is this photo here is taken from Milton Wright's journal. Milton was the uh, the father of Orville and Wilbur Wright. Hey, can you kill the lights for us? Bring the bring the neons down just a little bit. Milton was the father of Orville and Wilbur Wright. Remember the Wright brothers invented the first successful airplane, took the first successful flight. Uh, that first flight happened in December 17th, 1903. December 17th, 1903. And so on that same day, Milton, their father, put this in his journal. And I know you can't read it, so let's do it this way. The journal entry on that day said, In the afternoon at about 5.30, we received the following telegram from Orville, dated Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, December 17. Bishop M. Wright successful four flights Thursday morning, all against a 21-mile-an-hour wind, started from level with engine power alone, average speed through the air, 31 miles. Longest, 57 seconds. So he writes this in his journal about his sons. And then the next day, he writes this in his journal. The Inquirer continued following the headlines on the Wrights flying. Daytona Journal and Cincinnati Tribune contained nothing, exclamation point. Though I furnished the press report of the news. That's a proud father. That, now, some of you have had fathers or, or parents who were really proud of you and built you up. Some of you haven't. I didn't have one of those dads. This dad is rooting for his kids, and he's mad because certain newspapers didn't carry the news. And I just find that really endearing about that that entry there. Uh, So, not as 
Not as boisterous as some of the other entries we've seen, but that one I thought was really sweet. It shows you how proud he was of his son. Uh, so let's recap. Let's do a little bit of recap. We've said that a journal can tell you a lot of things about the writer or the owner of that journal. That's usually, if you can get a peek at somebody's journal, that's usually where you can find out more about who they were, how they thought, how they felt, their successes, their failures, all of that. It tells you a lot. And Jonah, the book of Jonah is written very much like a journal. Somebody asked me how I came up with all of this, and that's kind of how I did it. I was reading Jonah, and I thought, well, this reads like a journal. And so then I started thinking, well, if Jonah kept a journal, what would it look like? What would it sound like? And before long, I was off chasing stuff in my head, and, and we came up with a series. Um, but it's an interesting journal, if you will. It reads like an after-the-fact third-party journal, but it's very interesting. Jonah is a prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and he is calling basically out to God about their enemies, the Assyrians, all right? And so God calls him, and Jonah's probably hoping he'll say, yep, I'm going to wipe them out for you. But he doesn't. He says, you know what? I want you to go to Nineveh, which was a city of Assyria. And now it was not the biggest city in the area. The biggest city was Babylon. But this was right underneath that. And so Jonah gets sent to Nineveh by God to prophesy against it. And the Ninevites were, the Assyrians as a whole, they were a brutal, brutal people. Ruthless, torturous kind of people. And they were hated by the Israelites. And so because of this, you would think that Jonah would be glad when God says, I want you to go prophesy against this city. But instead, Jonah says, uh-uh, not doing it. Go. And he goes 180 degrees in the opposite direction. He does not even want to deal with the Assyrians. He's hoping that God will wipe them out. And so why go and prophesy and maybe give them a chance to give God a chance to change his mind? And so it's out of a sense of kind of personal hatred Maybe a little bit of patriotism on Jonah's part that he goes in the opposite direction. And because of this disobedience, Jonah goes down. And when you read the account, it's very clear. He goes down from Samaria. He goes down to Joppa. When he gets into Joppa, he goes down to the docks. And when he gets to the docks, he goes down into the bottom of the ship. And we talked about last week how from there he went down into the sea. And then he went down into the mouth of the fish. And then he goes down to the bottom of the sea. So the, the scripture is, is using this as a kind of a poetic way of telling you that when you disobey God, the trajectory is this way, not that way. The trajectory is down, not up. But Jonah hasn't evaded God. It keeps telling us that Jonah was fleeing from the face of God, from the presence of God, but it didn't work. He did not evade God. And God hurls this storm, and the word in the text is hurl. Like, think about throwing a baseball at somebody. God hurls a storm at the ship, and, and ultimately at Jonah. And this storm is so bad that these seasoned sailors who had seen everything were scared to death. They knew that there was something behind this storm. There was something different about this storm. 
And so they start dumping cargo over. They start crying out to their pagan gods. They, they do everything they can think of. And they finally decide they're going to cast lots to find out whose fault this storm is. Because this storm is different. This storm seems intentional. So they cast lots and the lots fall on Jonah. And they find him at the bottom of the ship. And he's sleeping. Which either means he's just that calloused and turned off. Or it means he's got a death wish. But they find him and they wake him up and they say, hey, pray to your God lest we all die. And then they start inquiring and Jonah tells them the whole story. Tells them who he is and who his God is and that he's running from God. And they freak out all the more. And Jonah basically says, you toss me overboard and it'll take care of all this. And they're scared to death. I mean, if Jonah's God is so powerful to throw this kind of storm at them, they don't want to hack him off. And so they don't want to throw Jonah overboard and make God, you know, they're throwing God's prophet overboard. That's not, he's not going to like that. So they try all the harder to get this ship to safety, and they couldn't. And so finally they pray to God and say, please don't hold this against us. And they toss Jonah overboard. And he hits the water, and he goes under, and Scripture says, by the time he comes up, the sea is like glass. That quick. It just settled. And so you can see Jonah kind of treading water, if you will, in your mind's eye, and you can see that ship disappear over the horizon. And about the time it does that, he's swallowed. I mean, just can you imagine anything big enough to swallow you has got to be pretty big, and so when it comes up and opens up its mouth, it's going to create a vortex that's going to pull you in. And... Uh, Scripture tells us he's in the belly of the fish. We don't know if he was all the way in the belly of the fish or just in the mouth. We read a report of a real-life incident of a man being swallowed by a whale and held in its mouth until it spit him free. But, but it's only at that time that Jonah prays. Up until that time, he hasn't prayed. He hasn't called on God. He hasn't done anything. It takes that to get Jonah's attention. And he prays, and God responds by vomiting him out on the land. And, and I love the fact that Scripture doesn't say the fish deposited him. It says he puked him out on the land. And, and it, hmm? it says he vomited him. It's a very specific and, and kind of jarring term. And... Uh, and the scripture tells us the reason the fish did this is because God commanded it to. So all through the book of Jonah, you see God's command and sovereignty over creation. You see it over the wind, over the storm, over the fish. Later, you'll see it in some other things in the last chapter of Jonah. And that's where we left off last week. So, any thoughts, any questions before we get into tonight's study? should bring everybody pretty much up to speed. So tonight, every night, I've been giving you this kind of fictitious entry from Jonah's journal. So let's look at this one. I'm on my way to Nineveh. When I wound up on the beach, I thought God was done with me. I figured he was leaving me there to rot. But as I was trying to find shelter and keep warm, I heard his voice just like I did before. 
The message hadn't changed. It was the same as before. Go to Nineveh and call out against it. But this time, I had learned my lesson, and I did what he wanted me to do. It's been a very long, long journey. But now I see the city in the distance, and it's bigger than I imagined. How will I do this? How will they respond? What am I doing? I wonder if those thoughts didn't go through Jonah's mind. Let's look at the text where we pulled this fictitious entry from. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Then, after he'd been vomited up on land, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceeding an exceeding great city, three days in journey and breadth. All right, so now let's take apart this text a little bit. Let's see what's really in there. There's a bunch of stuff in there. And let's start by looking at Jonah's call. Jonah's call. Jonah's call, it says, the second time. This is Jonah's second call, but it is the same call as the first. This is a dig. When Scripture puts it in here, it says, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. This is a dig. This is, this is a reminder that if he had just listened in the first place, we wouldn't have gone through all of this stuff. In fact, the words of his call and the initial call of chapter 1, are they are very, very similar. And basically it says, God has not changed his mind. God has, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, and the word was the same word. God hadn't changed his mind. He hadn't changed his plan. Look at these passages of scripture that back that up. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God doesn't change his mind. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes God will want me to do something and that I don't want to do, and I think if I just wait him out, maybe he'll forget about it, right? Maybe he'll let me off the hook. Maybe he'll... Give me a chance to do it another way. God doesn't do that. He just doesn't do that. He's very clear. Another passage of scripture. Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Because I don't change, you're not consumed. God, the Lord, doesn't change. So Jonah got the same call he got back in Samaria. And it didn't change. So now, let's look at Jonah's destination. Jonah's destination. Again, the destination is the same. The destination didn't change. It's like we could have cut out chapters 1 and 2 and just started at 3 if Jonah had followed the instructions and went to the place the first time. Nineveh, the, the destination is Nineveh. Let me show it to you on a map or show you the directions on a map. Now, we don't know exactly where Jonah's fish taxi dropped him off, right? But scholars seem to think it was probably something along these lines, based upon trade routes and everything else. 
And so if Jonah's fish taxi dropped him off there, it would have been approximately 550 miles to go from where he got dropped off to Nineveh. It would have been about the same distance, which I find interesting, if he had just listened in Samaria and went from Samaria, the distance would have been pretty close. Uh, and so God calls him to do this, and yet it's, he's got a long hike before he can even do what God's told him to do. Uh, so obeying God for Jonah was neither quick nor easy. And I think sometimes when God gives us something that's long and hard, we kind of question whether it's from God or not. Because if it was God, surely he'd make this easier. No, not always. Uh, you'd think, I mean, you'd think from this map, God could have dropped him off at least a little bit closer, right? He could have dropped him off up there in, in the, about where that second arrow is. Right up there in the, in the harbor, so to speak. But he didn't. He dropped him off at a place where he had about the same distance to travel if he'd obey, as if he'd obeyed them in the beginning. Kind of wonder if that was intentional. I don't know, but I kind of wonder if that was intentional. And we've said that Nineveh was the second largest city, second only to Babylon in size. We also have talked about the fact that it had these, this outer wall that was about... 150 feet high, 150 feet wide, and it surrounded kind of like the surrounding territory. And then there was an inner wall surrounding the inner, the, the city proper, if you will. Uh, now, there's some issues with the reported size. If you go back to the text, let's see if I can go back to the text. I'm going to have to go back a ways. Where it says, the Nineveh, the great city, three days' journey in breadth. So that leads us to believe that uh, that leads us to believe that for Jonah to walk from one end to the other took him three days. Now there's a problem with that because even archaeology tells us Nineveh probably was not that big. So you think, well, then okay, we have a problem with scripture. No, we don't, because the word says this. The, the word for it could be used as to walk straight across, which is often how the word is used. But the word is often used, also used, as a way of kind of making the whole course, traveling the whole trip. So Jonah's been given a message to give to the people of Nineveh. If he just goes straight through, not everybody in Nineveh is going to get it. So he's wandering throughout the city with the same message to make sure everybody gets it. And it took him three days to do that. It took him three days to wander throughout the city to make sure that the message got to where it was supposed to be. Uh, this is Jonah's destination. And remember, it's just a little old Jonah going to this great big city of his enemies. He probably didn't think he would get past the gate. And he probably thought once he got past the gate, they would just kill him. So the fact that he got to wander around for three days probably was an amazement to him. He probably thought that was a miraculous thing. So God says, same plan, same destination, only this time, look at Jonah's response. 
Let me show it to you in comparison. Jonah 1, 3. But God calls him and it says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now look at Jonah 3, 3. But Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Hear the difference? They're almost polar opposite statements. And scripture does that to show you the difference between when he first spoke to Jonah and when he secondly spoke to Jonah. Uh, this is Jonah's response. This time Jonah obeyed God and did what God told him to do. But, and we're going to get to this next week, but this doesn't say anything about Jonah's attitude. How many of you have had kids? How many of you have told those kids to do something they didn't want to do? That should be all of you if you've had kids. And sometimes you've told them repeatedly and threatened and may even have had to discipline, but eventually they did it. Was their attitude right? Not at all. And I'm just telling you as a parent, to expect to get obedience with a right attitude, that's setting the bar a little high, right? And this was Jonah. Jonah obeyed, but just because he obeyed doesn't say anything about his attitude. That comes out in the last chapter. We'll, we'll look at that next week. Uh, so let's do some takeaways from this, and then we'll take another chunk of the text, okay? Some takeaways. God is a God who is gracious and merciful and desires to give us a second chance, even when we don't deserve it. That deserves an amen, because none of us deserve it, and what we deserve is not a second chance. And that right there is where we find our hope. That we have a God who is gracious and who is merciful. I know some of us were brought up to think that God was a tyrant. That God was dictatorial. That he was just waiting to catch you messing up so he can get on you. That's not who God is. It's really hard if you had that kind of parent growing up. It's really hard not to see God in that light. But that's not him. He's gracious, he's merciful, and he's willing to give you a second chance even when you don't deserve it. Think of Jonah. Gave Jonah a second chance. Nineveh. He's given Nineveh a chance. The Israelites out in the wilderness with the golden calf. The woman caught in adultery. Peter, after denying Jesus. This is our God. He's willing and gracious and wants to give us a second chance, even if we don't deserve it. But here's the second takeaway. Though God offers a second chance, the requirement for obedience is still the same. That doesn't change. So yes, God wants to give us a second chance, but that requirement of obedience is still the same. In a sense, God's giving us a second chance to obey. Not a second chance to be off the hook, but a second chance to obey. Which leads us to the third takeaway for this text. Obedience to God may be harder and take longer than we want. But we're still called to obey. We're still called to obey. When God said, I want you 
to go into the ministry. First of all, it was hard for me to comprehend because knowing me like I know me, that was really hard to comprehend. But if I look back on it, it took six years, six or seven years for that to come into full fulfillment. Now, we're all in ministry, whether you're in full-time vocational ministry or not. We're all in ministry. But for me to get from doing what I was doing, kind of part-time in churches, to full-time ministry took probably close to seven years. And it was hard. And it was costly. It was difficult. And we had to surrender all kinds of things that we didn't want to surrender. It was just difficult. Now, looking back, I wouldn't trade it for anything, but I couldn't look back at that time. And sometimes... More often than we want, God calls us to things that are hard and that take a long time. At least in our eyes, in his eyes, time's no big deal. But in our eyes, it seems to take a long time. And that's not meant to discourage you, but it's, it's meant for us to realize that God is not a make-everything-better-and-easy-for-you kind of God. That's not what he's interested in. He goes to... Fishermen. Jesus comes up to fishermen and says, leave everything and follow me. Drop your business, let it go, don't even worry about selling it, just get rid of it. Some of you have families, you're not going to see them for a while, just, just go. That was not easy. It was not easy at all. He talks to Nicodemus about being born again. And, and for Nicodemus, what that means is his whole way of life since he was a little kid and being in this religious hierarchy all was going to get thrown out the window. Now, does God ask us to do some easy things? Some, yeah, but it's not all easy. And so we have to be ready for that. Jonah's trip to Nineveh was not easy. Confronting his enemy was not easy. Abraham left everything to wander in a land that God said would be his, but he'd never own it while he was alive. Moses, he's called to go back and face Pharaoh as a murderer. And then when he says, let my people go, and Pharaoh doesn't do it, he performs, God performs a miracle through him, and Pharaoh makes it harder on the people. And then the people hate him. So it's like Pharaoh hates him, the people hate him, the whole... And it took longer than he thought it was going to take. David running from Saul. God tells David, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And Saul freaks out and tries to kill him and chases him for years. So just be ready that when you decide... I'm going to obey God. It'll take you to some tough places. All right? Probably camped on that too long. Let's go to the next bit of text. So let's look at another possible entry from Jonah, and then we'll look at the text that comes from. Well, I did it. I did what he wanted me to do. I made the long trip to that huge fortified city. I walked through those gates and in the midst of my enemies. And I said this one message, one sentence. Eight words, and then I waited to die at their hands. 
After all, why should they believe what I had to say? I mean, they are a fierce and cruel people, and I'm just one scrawny man, their enemy. They didn't even believe in the God of Israel. And that's what makes what happened next so weird. Because they listened, and they believed, and they repented. Every one of them, even their officials. And I don't know what was happening, but whatever it was, they turned and changed. So now what? Let me show you the text I pull something like that from. Jonah, chapter 3, starting in verse 4, going through verse 9. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered in sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. And let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Remember how cruel they were? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. That's a revival. That's amazing. I'm sure Jonah didn't even expect anything like that. So, let's tear apart this text a little bit. Let's look at the message. Jonah's entire prophecy was just eight words. Just eight words. I mean, compare that to the prophecies you find in Isaiah or Ezekiel. Those things go on and on and on and on. Jonah's prophecy... Just eight words. And some of you are probably thinking, man, if we could just get our preachers to just preach eight words, that would be so awesome. But I'm telling you this, if I stood up before you on Sunday morning and preached just eight words and we were done, you would feel cheated. You know? But it was just eight words. And those words, because of God and His Spirit, were so powerful. But his message had everything it needed. It had everything it needed. The who, the Ninevites. The what, overthrown. The when, 40 days. There was nothing else the message needed. It just needed those eight words. Now, here's the funny thing. If, if you do a little word study, the word overthrown, the word is haphak. Haphak. Now, it can mean overturn or demolish, but it can also mean to turn and to change. Isn't it interesting that Jonah was probably thinking when God said, yet 40 days and the city will be overthrown, Jonah's thinking it's going to be demolished, it's going to be destroyed. But that word can also mean they turn, they change. 
It's just amazing how we get so locked in kind of a tunnel vision of how things should be or will be or could be. And God has just got a much more out-of-the-box picture than we do. And it's portrayed with just that one little word, hapak, which means to demolish and destroy or to turn and to change. So that leads us to the second thing we need to look at in this passage. And not just Jonah's message, but the reaction of the people. The message, eight words. And yet 40 days and then the city will be overthrown. But the reaction, you see that verse 5 is a summary statement of the reaction. Let's see if we can back up to verse 5. So verse 5 says this, And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. That's a summary statement. That's what happened. And then the rest of it, verse 7, tells you how. The, or excuse me, verse 6 through verse 9 tells you how that happened. First of all, it says that the king of Nineveh, and we've talked about this before. Nineveh was not the capital city of Assyria. So there really wasn't a king of Nineveh. And some people will use that to see, say the book of Jonah is just messed up. No, it probably refers to the ruling authority over that city. Because remember, cities were like little, little fortified nations in and of themselves. And so the king of Nineveh probably means the ruling authority the mayor, the governor, however you want to think about it. Uh, the command was this, fasting and sackcloth. But the thing of it is, this is another thing that throws people, is this idea that animals would fast and animals would wear sackcloth. That's just unrealistic. That's just silly. So they use that to poke holes in the credibility of this book. But really, why would such extreme measures, I mean, I understand people fasting and praying, putting on sackcloth, and by the way, putting on sackcloth and ashes was a, a display of grief, a display of repentance and grief. So you get why people would do that, but why would animals do that? Well, one, they could have been just that superstitious. Remember, before Jonah arrives in Nineveh, they had been through a couple different plagues, which they attributed to some kind of divine punishment. And then they'd also witnessed a solar eclipse, which, if you're superstitious, just you just know God's out to get you. So it could have been their superstition that led them to go all out on all of this. But it's probably just trying to cover all their bases. You know, if... If you knew, first, if a prophet walked into Augusta and said, 40 days and Augusta's going to be wiped off the map, first of all, you would think he's crazy. And because uh, I have those people that walk into my office all the time. Uh, but second of all, if you found out he was serious, wouldn't you do anything and everything you could to keep that from happening? So that's what the Ninevites are doing. They're doing anything and everything they can to keep that from happening. Uh, that's why the animals are told they can't eat. That's why they're to dress them in sackcloth and ashes. 
Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence in his hands. They're trying to hedge their bets. Because that's why it says there in verse 9, who knows, God may turn and relent. Maybe if we do everything we can, he'll change his mind. So, before we go and do some takeaways here, let me, let me point out some things about Jonah, the book of Jonah. The whole book of Jonah is about turning. It's about turning. It's about God turning Jonah. Jonah turning back to God. The Ninevites turning. God turning to the Ninevites. The whole thing is about turning. It's about obedience. It's about the authority of God over creation. It's about submission to his call. It's about turning. It's a very theological book. And we shortchange this book because we think it's just about some fish story. You know, it's a story we read to children. But this is extremely theological in its stance. And even down to the point of what does God want for his enemies? And what happens when the people of God are worse than the pagans? Remember we saw that on the ship. All the pagans were crying out to God trying to please him. Jonah wasn't. So there's a lot of theological questions in the book of Jonah that we, we need to pay attention to. It's uh, especially important in the book of Jonah, especially this idea of turning, this idea of when you disobey, it takes you down. So let's, before we do some takeaways, talk to me. I've been doing way too much talking. What are you hearing? What questions pop up in your mind? What connections are you making? Because if you read scripture and don't think about it deeper than just what you read, you won't get what God wants you to get out of it. So talk to me. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Norm said it reminded him of the story of a business story where one guy says, yes, I'll do it. But then he never does. Another guy says, no, I don't want to do that. But eventually he does it. Which one do you want to deal with the most? There's actually scripture talks about that. I cannot recall where it's at, so somebody dig it up for me. But there's actually a place where scripture talks about that. It's almost the exact same kind of story. Someone else? It's in the Gospels. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, she said we should never write someone off as too evil, too far gone. God can't do anything with them. You know, because the truth of the matter is God did something with us. So if he can do something with us, he can do something with most anybody, right? You know, I was nine years old playing music in bars. I had hair down to hair. 
God can do something with me. He can do something with anybody. Somebody else. Jonah's chocked full of this stuff. Yes. Yeah, she said she just thinks about all these miraculous things that happened to Jonah. It just seems like he should have been in awe. But Jonah, and we'll find this out next week, Jonah's got an axe to grind. Jonah holds a grudge. I don't know if any of you know people like that, or maybe some of you are people like that, who hold a grudge, and it's just really hard to let go of that grudge. Jonah was one of those guys. And that's why Scripture talks about not letting a root of bitterness grow up in you. How many of you have ever tried to pull out a root? I mean, like a tree stump. Yeah, it's not that easy, is it? You know, even grinding that stump up is not that easy. Because once something goes to root, it's hard to unroot it. And so Jonah was one of those guys who held a grudge. He had something that went to root, a root of bitterness. And so that kept him from, I'm not saying he didn't see those things, it kept him for from really seeing them for what they were. The parable of the two sons. Parable of the two sons. Thank you, Norm. Matthew, Matthew what? 21. 21. Thank you, Bible scholars. I appreciate There should be gold stars or something to give out. Uh, look at that. It's the exact same story about one who says they'll do it and they don't, and another one who says, no, I don't want to, but yet they go and do it. So a lot of that in Jonah. Anyone else? Yes. Yeah, he said it's amazing that Jonah would go into the city of his enemies and that God would protect him. And then not only that, but that, that they would listen to him. And, and I kind of agree with you. That's almost more amazing than a man being swallowed by a fish, you know. Uh, try, try to do that in today's world and see how far that gets you. So it took a lot of faith. But I guess if you're kind of got two options, go do what I'm told or get swallowed again, you know, you, you go do what you're told. But you're right, that's an amazing part of Jonah. And some of us, God has asked us to do things we didn't think we could do. And some of us have done them and you found out that God was with you and some of you are still waiting to do them. This is the, the encouragement from the book of Jonah. Anyone else? Yes. Yes, yes, this is much later. This is in the divided kingdom period. And the interesting thing about this is we just read that the Assyrians repent and God decides not to destroy them. But two years later, the Assyrians come in and wipe out the northern kingdom. So this is right before the northern kingdom falls and people get deported. Two years, two to three years ahead of that. Oh, he was in the middle of them, of those miracles, yeah. 
So her question is, if, God, if Jonah was in the middle of seeing all of these miracles, why did he sell God short? Don't we do that like every single day almost? Some of you can look back and see God's intervention in your life. And, and some of you can see that in a very strong and powerful way. And yet when the next challenge comes, what do we do? We fret. We worry. We don't think back. That's why when the children of Israel were going through the wilderness, and even after they got in the promised land, God kept saying things, and Moses kept saying things like, remember when God did this? Remember when God did this? They cross the Jordan, they set up a pillar and says, hey, when your children ask, tell them the story. Keep remembering. Why? Because when we quit remembering, we feel like we're all on our own. And uh, we do this all the time, you know. And, and we do, it's kind of a, Jonah could have said, okay, well, God saved me from the fish. But Nineveh's another story. What if he doesn't save me there? I mean, don't we do that? Yeah, yeah, that was then, but this is now. And so Jonah's a very applicable book to us. We have all, we've all seen miracles. We just don't know that they're miracles. We haven't paid attention to them. How many of you got up this morning and did not have to tell your heart to beat? Right? How many of you got up and thought, oh, I've got to remember. It's got to beat, beat, beat. No one tells your heart to beat. And it does. I know all the really stupid things I did as an adolescent. And I should not be here. But I am. Start paying attention to the miracles in your life. The more you see them, now again, you'd think Jonah saw all these things. He should know better. But again, remember, Jonah's kind of self-reliant. He's still, still nursing a grudge. It's going to really come out next week when we get to it. Someone else, this is all good stuff. Isn't it amazing, Jonah? We've just done three short little chapters in Jonah, and there is so much to milk out of this book. That's the way scripture is. Hebrews 4.12, I believe it is, says, For the word of God is quick, or meaning living and powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. And then it says, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. So somebody said, the Bible is the only book that reads you. And so... It's amazing what you can pull out of the heart of God from just a simple little thing that you thought you knew the story in. All right, anyone else before we do these takeaways? All right, let's do these takeaways and then we'll go home. Or wherever you want to go. You don't have to go home, but wherever you want to go. When I played in the bars and it got to be closing time, they would flash the lights and they would say, you don't have to go home, but you've got to get out of here. So I'll give you the same thing. You don't have to go home, but we'll have to get out of here. First takeaway, being obedient trumps being overwhelmed. Can you imagine how overwhelmed Jonah must have been? The length of the time it took to make his journey to Nineveh, the size of the city, the people being enemies uh, compared to just little old him, walking into the enemy camp and prophesying doom over them. Can you imagine how overwhelming that must have felt? But obedience trumps being overwhelmed. 
All right, let's do another one. Sometimes the simplest message is the most effective. Sometimes. Now, guys, this is not an excuse for you not to talk to your wife or give her one-word responses, okay? I know, I get it. I go home of an evening, and my wife says, how was your day? And I have two standard responses, fine or busy. That's it, you know? And so I don't want you to take this takeaway and say, well, it's okay for me to do that. It's not. But also, wives, let this be a message to you. Oftentimes, you use more words than we can process. <laughs> All right? So there's a little bit of something for both of us in here, right? Sometimes the simplest message, uh, message is, is the most effective. Uh, Jonah's message was just eight words. Just eight words. Sometimes the more you say, the more you can mess things up. Trust me. Uh, that's why when, when I preach, I try to preach 20 to 30 minutes. And somebody says, why do you preach so short? And I said, one, I'm not that smart and I don't have that much to say. And two, after that length of time, I'm tired of listening to me. You know, Try to make it simple, try to make it short. And do that in your conversations. And Jonah's message was not this big tome of, of Ezekiel, like Ezekiel or Isaiah. It was just... Eight simple words. Sometimes that's the most effective. Three, sometimes those furthest from God are more open to respond to him than those who claim to be close to him. This is really important because a lot of us, myself included, are really hesitant to witness because we're afraid they don't want to hear and they're going to put us off or, or make fun of us or but Jonah shows us that sometimes the most hardened of heart can be more open to receive than some of God's own people. It's amazing, really, when that happens. I used to work in Texas in the oil fields. That's a rough crowd. And, and the interesting thing was I would interact with them. We'd talk to them. They'd listen. And it even got to the place where when I would pull up on the well site, all these rough old men would say, shh, shh, keep it down. He's here. And I'd fuss at them and say, you don't have to do that. But it, they were open. They were receptive. And, and we should remember this and, and be a little more bold and a little more brave to jump out there. How many of you have seen the Jesus Revolution? Okay. Remember when one of the deacons said, we don't want those hippies in our church. And yet they were open and receptive, and the deacons were going, ah. It's always been that way. It always will be that way. When Jesus picked disciples, he didn't go to the religious leaders. He went to fishermen, tax collectors. He went to people that had anger problems. Remember James and John, the sons of thunder? He went to people like Peter, who shot off their mouth before he thought. He was like a ready, fire, aim kind of person. These are the people he went to. Remember that when you're hanging around someone and God just kind of pokes you and says, you should talk to them. Sometimes those furthest from God are more open to respond than those who claim to be close to him. Two more takeaways. Leaders set the example and the pace for those they lead. 
Leaders set the example of pace for those you lead. Now, some of you are going, this one doesn't apply to me. I'm not a leader. If you have influence over anybody, you're a leader. Even if it's just your kids, you're a leader. Maybe you lead a small group, you're a leader. Maybe you're just in a Bible study, but when you speak up, people pay attention. You're a leader. Even if you're not the high man on the totem pole at work, you are still a leader to somebody. And leaders set the example and the pace for those who lead. We see this in the story where the king of Nineveh sets the example. He sets the pace. He doesn't tell everybody else to fast and do sackcloth and ashes. He does it, then tells everybody to do it. Your family, your friends, your employees, your students, anybody you're around, you impact, and that makes you a leader of some sort. So set the example. Set the pace. And one of my fears is in the world that we live in, we are not setting the example or the pace. Uh, looking to see if I have enough time to get myself in trouble. Uh, one of my concerns in our society is that the, the example and the pace that Christians set is bad. It's argumentative it's combative the old saying that people know more about what we're against than what we're for it, it, it's just I was a student pastor in Texas and I took my kids somewhere which is always dicey when you do that and uh, we went to a conference they came back really fired up for Jesus but they were so fired up for Jesus that one of my guys would stick his head out the window and t say to passers-by, turn or burn. <laughs> Dude, I know you're excited, but you got to dial that one back a little bit. Uh, so what kind of examples are we setting? And what kind of pace are we setting? And uh, why, why are most of Christians associated? Boy, this is going to get me in trouble. I better close right now. Why are most Christians associated with Fox and not CNN? And why isn't there a cross-population and pollinization? Why aren't we influencing our culture rather than staying away from them or throwing rocks at them? Why are we not doing that? This was Jonah's problem. Jonah was a Fox News guy. Let them Ninevites burn. And God was teaching them don't ever discount what God can do in anybody's life. Be there, be my tool, be my instrument to influence, to affect. Be salt, be light. Okay, that's enough soapbox. Last, last takeaway, and then we'll go home. In the end, God wants three things from us. Just three. To truly believe him, to humbly turn to him, and to fully obey him. That's what God wanted from Jonah. It's what he wanted from the Ninevites. It's what he wants from you and I. Those three things. Listen to them again. To truly believe him. Truly, deeply believe him. To humbly turn to him. Quit being so self-sufficient. 
humbly turn to him and to fully obey him. I think that's a, probably a good place to stop. Yes? Yeah, yeah, it's hard to follow God and stay comfortable. I wish it was not. I would love to be able to follow God and stay comfortable, but it rarely works that way. Yes. And you look at people in Scripture, the Moseses, you look at Abraham, you look at Jonah, you look at these people, even the prophets, their lives were not comfortable. You look at the disciples, you look at Paul. So, yeah, sometimes we don't get out and influence people because it makes us or them uncomfortable. And yet, nobody really grows unless they're uncomfortable. Them or us. Yes? Is it wrong to want to be comfortable? It's human to want to be comfortable. Absolutely human to be comfortable. There's a great passage in in Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews chapter 5, where it says that Jesus cried out to God. Is it sinful to want to be comfortable? No. But to allow what we want to trump what God wants, that's where it crosses the line. You know, I'm not saying God wants us all to suffer all the time. And if, and if, it's, if it's pleasant, it's not from God. No. Everything is in balance. But we want to tip the scales this way to pleasant and comfortable and getting what we want. And we need to balance it out a little bit. Just not the easiest thing in the world. All right, anybody else? Oh, sorry. Pardon? Oh, I don't know about that. Thank you, though. I appreciate that. Uh, but I... I'm a leader because I've made a lot of mistakes and can tell you not one, which ones not to make, right? You know, that's how I do marriage counseling. When people come in to do marriage counseling, I say, oh, yeah, I've made that mistake. Here's what it cost me. You need to avoid that. Uh, but thank you. All right, anyone else? All right, we will finish this book next week. We'll finish the last chapter. If you want to read ahead, fine. If you want to be surprised, be surprised. But be really good if you read ahead. You'll come with lots of questions if you do. We'll finish up that series, and then next week we'll talk about what comes after that, all right? So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that Jonah, which seems to be like a short, simple children's story, is so rich and so provocative, Father. And it has just stepped all over my toes as we've gone through this. And... Uh, and Father, I confess to you that there are still ways I am like Jonah. Um, even though I'm studying this, even though I'm teaching it, there are ways in which my heart is still like Jonah. And so we ask you to have the same grace and mercy with us that you had with Jonah. But we also ask that we would, when you do so, when you give us that second chance to obey, that we will. And I pray that somehow we will see that, experience that, and live in that this week as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. We'll see you next week for the last one.